Welcome to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast, where our goal is to engage and inform our audience from investors to asset managers and portfolio managers to sustainability leaders and those involved in ESG and sustainable finance. This is Kisa Shreen. According to the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, around 1 million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction, many within decades, more than ever before in our human history. Now, what's behind this? Well, changes in land and sea use, for one, climate change, and pollution, among other factors. Also, biodiversity loss was ranked among the top global risks by the World Economic Forum. And while factors like climate change have already started having a material impact on asset values across the globe, few financial institutions have a deep understanding of how nature-related risks can affect businesses and their portfolios. Today, we're going to discuss how and why companies should measure and report on biodiversity. And just as importantly, how can investors encourage them and help them to do so? Here with us is Joel Houday, Managing Director at the Biodiversity Footprint Company. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Thank you, Kizan. It's a pleasure. So what exactly do we mean by the term biological diversity and why should corporations and investors care about it? All right. Well, biodiversity is about all living things from species, um, genetic diversity, and the ecosystems that all of that lives in. And these things interact together and they provide lots of benefits and services to companies and people. For instance, um, bees uh, provide pollination services to agriculture. Uh, fish is used by fisheries and different types of companies uh, use that for different products along the supply chain. And all of these different users also uh, generate impacts along the way. And that leads to many types of risk from a business perspective. Uh, we see more and more companies uh, facing physical constraints, typically access to biological resources being constrained. Uh, and more and more companies also are facing uh, what we call ecosystem disservices, where ecosystems fail to function properly and air and water fail to be um, treated properly so that it generates extra cost for companies. But uh, more and more importantly, I guess, from a financial perspective, it's becoming a permitting issue to get project approval, to get a project off the ground. Uh, there's more and more constraints from a policy, a legislative perspective to get um, biodiversity taken into account. And sometimes in a non-net loss uh, framework, which means that you cannot degrade more than you uh, than, um is possible from a conservation perspective. Uh, and at the end of the day, all of that is about, I guess, stranded assets. More and more people are calling, including uh, more than 40 leaders just a few weeks ago, for 30% of land and seas to be protected from development. And that actually could rise up to 50% if we listen to scientists. What does this mean for business? It means that you need to think creatively about how you develop land, how you develop the seas. You cannot just expand continuously. And places where 
people expect future development, like let's say Canada or Russia, or are probably going to become um, places where it's a no-go area in the future. So from a pure business perspective, it, it's, I guess, both um, constraints right now in terms of access to resources, uh, new laws and regulation, and especially in terms of the future, how can you develop, how can you grow in a constrained world? That's a key question from my perspective. So, Joel, now that we're talking about you know, stranded assets becoming an issue, air and water not being treated properly, that becoming an issue, what are the tangible risks and potential losses that corporations and investors should be thinking about in light of this? Um, well, uh, there are quite a few of them. So, typically in, in, our, in our company, we are facing quite a number of clients, especially in the mining sector, that want to expand their operations, for instance, in the coal sector, in the many, diver, uh, many mining um, commodities. And the issue becomes, uh, how can I expand and, uh, into that wetland, into that place where there's that plant growing or that marble species is living? And there's so many stakeholder pressure to actually take that into account, that in some cases, uh, approval for expansions are completely uh, refused by authorities. We've seen that a number of times in South Africa and throughout the world. So just in terms of going concern and business expansion, it's becoming already a key material issue. Uh, and now in terms of, of a more positive outlook, it's becoming also uh, a new perspective for innovation. How can I design products and services that take ballast into account? How can I grow my business uh, using the same land, same land area uh, without expanding into new ones and be more resource uh, efficient, essentially? So it's a both sides of the coin. It's not just negative. And we see that in many, many sectors, including especially in the agribusiness sector. How can I become more efficient without destroying new uh, wild nature and use what I've got already and make use of wild nature to pollinate or provide clean water? So if I were to categorize those risks, would you consider these systemic risks? It sounds like they have the potential to become reputational risk. What types of categories would you put that in? So historically, it was more reputational, especially when a threatened uh, species, highly, uh, highly well-known species, was uh, threatened by a business. You had your business reputation at stake. But more and more, um, I think it's a resource physical constraint that is occurring in many places in the world, especially on, from a commodity perspective. If, for instance, you talk about renewable energy and you need metals to, to, to actually grow your business, where are you going to source them? Uh, it's going to be a major issue of, of physical constraint because you cannot expand into wild areas for, uh, in the future. That's one side. From a systemic perspective, uh, the failure of ecosystem generates so many systemic risks from uh, failure of providing clean water throughout a watershed, uh, also uh, through climate change, calling all the, the different um, uh, cataclysm that we've seen from um, natural disasters to uh, rise in sea level, which has huge impact I'm not going to go into. And uh, from a policy perspective, uh, as I said, there's, there's a growing call from world leaders to protect 30% of land and surface area within the next 20 years. What does this mean for your business? How can you expand uh, next door if, you, if there is a policy and a legislative context that forces you to offset your damages? It's going to be very, very expensive. So it sounds like these risks are already considered material risks. This is not something that's in the works. It's already there in terms of materiality. For many right? companies, it is already a material risk now. So let's switch gears and talk about firms that are successfully reporting on biodiversity, the ones that are just getting it right. Tell us about how they measure impact and what their disclosures look like. So... 
unfortunately, I cannot say that they're getting it right. Let me just um, comment on that. What I mean is more and more companies have got sustainability reports out there. Most of the major, largest companies out there, they do report on an annual basis on a number of topics. And typically, uh, it's based on the management approach to uh, sustainability risk and the disclosure of some quantitative metrics, for instance, water use, uh, greenhouse gas emissions. When we talk about biodiversity, there's a limited number of companies uh, that actually mention biodiversity. And uh, there's a recent report that was published just two years ago out of the top 100 2016 Fortune 500 global companies uh, assessment that was recently published, as I said, uh, only 31 of those companies had actually biodiversity targets that were measurable, specific, and time-bound. So those few companies do have targets and KPIs, key performance indicators. But however, what's missing for almost all of them is the basic starting point of how much impact do they have. Nobody talks about their surface area that they control on their own, and what is the state of biodiversity on them how much uh, biodiversity is left, how much has been impacted uh, historically uh, through the last year and over time, essentially. So we're missing the magnitude and the scale of that impact is missing from these reports still. And, uh, and I guess uh, at the end of the day, there's been, uh, from a business perspective, concern that we didn't, didn't have the right measurement tools, the right indicators to actually uh, put together those data sets at a company level. These things are changing. There are more and more companies providing services in terms of biodiversity footprinting. There are more and more uh, solutions out there. And for instance, I uh, uh, encourage you to have a look at the EU Business and Biodiversity uh, Network. They do an annual regular um, follow-up of all the different tools out there for companies, and they provide reports on what's the progress. And it's, yeah. So basically, at the end of the day, the solutions are there, but we are still missing that quantitative data in those reports. So let's dive deeper into that. I, I'm thinking, where does this biodiversity data even come from? What are the different sources? You talked about the EU business and biodiversity information. What other sources? How reliable are those sources? And what's being done to improve the quality of the data? So when we talk about biodiversity, we need to understand there's a value chain of information. First, there's the raw data sets. For instance, maps of vegetation, um, information about the occurrence of specific species in the landscape. This raw information uh, has varying quality across different countries. For instance, we know quite well what's there in Europe, but we know very little about Amazonia or Central Africa or Southeast Asia. So there's disparity, and most of the da those data sets are managed uh, either by some global organization like UNEP, World Conservation Monitoring Center, or national entities. But for those countries without any resources to, to get and manage those data, obviously it's a big challenge. But that's one side of the value chain, the raw data. Then it's about measuring the impact. It's about how do you measure the change in biodiversity over time. And for this, a number of organizations have developed different tools, and there are basically two models. One uh, group of people focus on measuring the actual change through satellite imagery, through um, on-site surveys uh, of different experts, uh, and that's one side of one, one approach. And the other is based on modeling. Through clever uh, algorithm, you can uh, generate biodiversity footprints using what we call uh, impact drivers, which are typically uh, climate change information or resource use information. So those two approaches are being used. And I guess what matters at the end of the day is how do you want to use this? If it's for a high level risk screening, 
typically a modeling approach can work. But if you want to get uh, your project approval for, by um, a permitting uh, um, authority, you need to have real data on site. Is that species actually present? Is that wetland really threatened? You can't rely on just model information. You need actually real data. So it's a mixed basket and but at the end of the day i want to maybe to to to, to reassure your your audience it's the same with uh, climate change data you've got global data sets managed by different people but you also need real internal data at the end of the day if you want to make any meaningful decision you need to measure your own emissions and that requires working uh, through that process yourself so in terms of the increase of this data, and I know there are different types. We have the real data versus the model info. Have you seen increases in the demand for data over the last couple of years? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, more and more nations are putting together uh, what they call ecosystem accounts. There's a standard being finalized right now uh, at the UN um, CEA. It's for basically the body that sets accounting standards at the level of nations. And they are calling for each country to, to put together databases on biodiversity change. And that requires, obviously, input from business. And it can also um, supply information to different uh, companies. But uh, that's one side. Of, of things. On the other end, more and more stakeholders are asking companies about what is the scale of a biodiversity footprint. If you're a retailer, if you're a mining uh, operator, if even if you're a financial institution, what is the biodiversity risk in your product and your services throughout your supply chain? More and more um, clients, uh, even consumers, are asking about this on product labels. So there's definitely a growing trend. And I'm just going to mention a couple of examples. There's more and more pressure, typically at the EU level, uh, even UK level, for product labels regarding deforestation, regarding the loss of specific species, uh, there's more and more demand for that type of information and it's growing. Just want to, to add a couple of things that are linked to that. First of all, there's been some um, very interesting development at the level of CDP, which collects data um, privately from, from organization on historically on climate and water and they're expanding into biodiversity since last year. So that's also a new thing. So they're asking especially the mining sector for biodiversity impact information and there's also in 2021 uh, there's going to be the adoption of a post-2020 global biodiversity framework which is going to be agreed upon by all the nations that are parties to the UN and as part of this process we're going to have to have an international and national targets for for biodiversity mainstreaming and it will mean that companies somehow will have to start measuring their impact, report and disclose them as well, so that they can actually contribute to uh, national targets. Similarly to what has happened with climate change, uh, there's um, nationally um, determined uh, contributions and budget that have been done for climate change. We're going to see the same process for, for biodiversity coming up very soon. Mm, so bringing that along into the same realm as climate change, that global biodiversity framework in 2021. That sounds very interesting. Let's talk about the importance of corporate disclosures for investors. Specifically, what are the top three to five things that investors need to look for? Uh, well, if from a pure risk perspective, I think there are two main approaches. First of all, you have to, to understand whether the, the asset category of a company you want to look at is actually operating at a high risk region. And there's a number of data sets out there that actually map those biodiversity important areas, typically uh, the Amazon or uh, even Southeast Asia, like uh, Indonesia and its islands are really high risk. That's an example. But on the other hand, it's also about specific 
commodities and product. So it's quite easy actually to, to red flag them and understand whether these are high risk uh, assets and commodities. However, be going beyond that, uh, any business actually relies on biodiversity and impact biodiversity. So what they should ask for, first of all, is, is there any actual company policy beyond uh, following up what the legislation requires? Because what we see coming up more and more is that proactive business uh, have a very specific biodiversity policies, and this is going way beyond than just saying that we respect the law. These companies are thinking ahead and they're talking about having no net loss or net positive impact. We've seen a number of companies, if I recall a report mentioned, uh, published just last year, there's about, um, yeah, I believe it's almost 40 comp global companies with no net uh, loss or net positive impact target regarding biodiversity. It's quite a lot, it's a challenge, but they should actually look for, for such um, commitment to see the, to find companies that are actually uh, really trying to make a difference. But, um, and going beyond that, I think what the future really is all about is what companies actually embrace this challenge and find new ways to make business and find new opportunities, especially in the agribusiness sector, especially in the in the finance sector, how can you how can you finance new business models that actually uh, protect biodiversity and have actually positive impact at the end of the day? That's amazing. The, the last question, Joel. There are loads of projects that you've already started to talk about, but I'm just wondering what other sorts of projects can we expect to see in 2021 happening around driving change in biodiversity? So. A I think uh, there's a number of activities uh, happening. As I say, there are more and more service providers providing solutions to companies to, to assess the biodiversity footprint. There's a number of government actually asking the private sector to contribute and to and to come up with their, with their own solutions. And we've seen a group of uh, organizations coming together uh, on a specific project which is called um, the Biological Diversity Protocol. It sounds like the greenhouse gas protocol, and it's similar in concept. It's about providing an accounting framework to help companies uh, measure, uh, consolidate their net biodiversity impact data at the group level. This was something that was missing. We had uh, data about impacts from a specific site or a specific product or company, and but it was always a challenge for companies to pull together that data. And, to, and that specific project was developed through collaboration by many organizations over the past three years, and it's going to be released uh, very soon over the next few months. And the goal of that is to provide um, to the private sector a free resource and any consultant can develop their own uh, solution, IT solution actually using the standard based on that. And at the end of the day, it's, it's basically about providing an accounting framework to, to assess the biodiversity footprint of companies of any sector, any supply chain, any, any kind of business. And that was really missing. And I want to highlight a couple of things uh, in it. First of all, it's focusing on changes in ecosystem, changes in species. It's about actually uh, helping companies quantify that specific impact. We're not talking about impact drivers like resource use or water use or climate change uh, emissions. No, we're talking about changes in ecosystem condition and extent. We're talking about changes in population of species. It's possible to quantify it, to measure it, and to put it together. And that specific accounting framework is actually an adaptation of double entry bookkeeping, which originates from uh, financial accounting. So we're putting together a um, statement of biodiversity position, statement of biodiversity performance, uh, but it's not in financial uh, monetary values, it's in biodiversity metrics. But at the end of the day, it helps companies actually keep track of what's happening within their uh, operations. 
And as part of that process, uh, just want also to highlight why this project has actually been been put together. Is that from uh, one of my uh, part organization, which is the Energy Wildlife Trust based in Johannesburg, South Africa, we've been actually assessing uh, uh, Johannesburg Stock Exchange listed company for the past three years. We've been looking at the quality of the disclosure on biodiversity, and we've been making that that information public. And what we found is that there is no quantified um, consolidated impact data at the level of a company. And that specific tool aims to address that gap, providing a framework which is freely available uh, and makes it easy to compile biodiversity impact data for all report users, from investors to broader stakeholders. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's really about asking companies to assess and talk about their biodiversity footprint. In a nutshell, it's about what they, the ecosystem they control, they have under ownership or leasehold, and how much of it is in good condition or in bad condition. That's it at the end of the day. Joel, such great information here. So starting off talking about really what risks look like. Historically, there was a lot of reputational risks involved in terms of threatening species, et cetera. But now we're seeing more systemic risk in the area of biodiversity, failure in providing clean water, um, the climate change that accompanies that. And risks are already material for many companies. One issue is that there's a limited number of companies that are even mentioning biodiversity and having a measurable specific specific time-bound biodiversity targets. So something that's emerging, but many firms don't have this in hand yet. Um, and what's missing from many of those targets and from many of those measurements is magnitude and scale of impact. In terms of data, there is real data as well as model info and we really need to understand how the data is to be used to make the best decision about which data approach to take, whether using real data or model data. And also worth noting here, definitely, more nations are putting together ecosystem accounts, so creating accounting standards, putting together databases on biodiversity change, and that's definitely hitting an uptick as we see more and more of that. Also, more stakeholders are asking about the scale of their biodiversity footprint, as well as biodiversity risk throughout their supply chains. What should investors look for? You mentioned, Joel, understanding the asset category that they're operating in and understanding what the risk of the region is. So whether they're operating at a, in a high-risk region or a lower-risk region. And also, the specific commodities and products, are those commodities considered high risk? If so, we need to be mindful of that. Finally, one of the most important questions that an investor should ask, what is the company policy? Is the company thinking ahead, being forward thinking in terms of financing new business models that are protecting and improving biodiversity footprint? The projects that we expect to see in the near term, lots of those, just going to name a couple, Global Biodiversity Framework in 2021, and with that one, international targets are in play, as well as the Biological Diversity Protocol and Accounting Framework to Measure Net Biodiversity Footprint. Joel Huday, thank you so much for joining. Such a great and interesting conversation. Thank you, Kiza. It's a pleasure. We invite you to subscribe to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your content. What did you think about the podcast? Leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for updates on our show. You can even check us out on YouTube now. Thank you for joining. See you next time.